Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. When you hear some of the things that today's guest has already achieved at a young age, it'll blow your mind. But to me, she's also an example of someone who's truly connected to her purpose and has no barriers at all about what is possible. Have a listen to this. She was a finalist for the Young Australian of the Year at 20, listed as one of Australia's top 100 most influential women at 21. The recipient of Pride of Australia medal has been on the front cover of the Financial Review and the Yellow Pages and featured in a documentary aired on primetime national television. Nicole Gibson is a fierce ambassador for mental health and connection. She's the CEO of the Rogue and Rouge Foundation and has published her first book because I believe that she will have many more books. And this book is called Love Out Loud. Our conversation is heartwarming and deep as Nick shares her own experience with mental health and the practical tools that she still uses to keep love at the forefront of everything that she does. Having already achieved so much, I have a feeling this is a name that you'll hear more of in the future. Enjoy this conversation with Nicole Gibson. Nick, welcome into the studio. Thank you. It's, um, I've, there's so much that I want to jump into the story, some of your way of viewing the world, uh, but I understand that you're off overseas for a couple of months. I am on Monday in two days, which still hasn't really sunk in because I've just been doing what I do and haven't considered the fact that I'm leaving the country for two months. But <laughs> the packing will come. Up. Yeah, it'll come probably Monday morning. Where are you <laughs> heading off to? Um, I'm first of first. I'm flying into Tallinn in Estonia to do this really cool, sort of immersive process with a community called Mind Valley. So they bring. It's really awesome, actually. Vision, their their founder and CEO, his vision is to sort of make education um, accessible and also lifelong. He doesn't really agree with traditional models of education, which I really resonate with. So part of what he gets Mind Valley to host is something called Mind Valley U, where a bunch of entrepreneurs from around the world come and actually live in a different city together every year for three or four weeks and co-learn and learn from some of the best minds in different spaces from spirituality to health to philosophy to entrepreneurship and tech. Amazing. Yeah, so I'm, Full I'm excited. Immersion. Yeah, it's cool, I think, to be a student, especially when you're in a role where you're sort of in a leadership position, to just be able to fly away from that for a few weeks and, and learn, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't have to take charge of, is everyone okay? Are they all getting this? Yeah, like, yeah, you exactly. need to be fed next. Yep. You can I get do. to be facilitated. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Yeah. And then London after that. And have you got anything in London? Or you... I've got some talks, which is really exciting. And I'm um, sort of a few things to promote the book, which is great. I'll probably have a sneaky few trips to Spain and France and maybe Croatia, <laughs> but mostly for the book. Yeah, yeah, you've got to get in, um, particularly for the food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. To get to France and Spain. You want to dive it's Summer in days in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing quite like it. Swims in the Mediterranean. Oh, it's just stunning, just stunning. Last August, um, my family and I, we had a month in France and, yeah, yeah that's part of me going, oh, let's just go and do six months and <laughs> especially summer, especially yeah. summer. It's just a beautiful part of the world. Mm. And you alluded to before this opportunity to have three weeks where you can kind of just sit on the back seat. Mm. Life's pretty busy. 
got plenty, plenty on the go. Yeah, busy isn't my favourite word, and that's probably sounding like a cliche thing to say in and of itself, but I feel like my life's definitely full. And um, I find myself constantly in a process of creating and sort of forward forward thinking and designing, sort of actually take a step back from that and be able to learn from really incredible people is always a real gift. Like you said, not having to coordinate things or plan things or be focusing on a strategy but be taken along for a ride is really cool. That creative thinking, has that always been a part of you? I would definitely say so, yeah. I mean, I don't really know what it's like to think line- linearly, so <laughs> I can't, I'm not probably, I'm a bit this biased. This is my brain. Yeah, this, this is, is my brain, is. <laughs> but I definitely know I've always viewed the world in a in slightly left of centre to other people and my process has never really been linear either. So when I'm creating something, I'll tend to find that it comes to me in, in an abstract sort of way and, yeah, probably have an ability to, to join quite abstract ideas together and, and connect those dots. Where did you grow up? Pretty interesting, like, upbringing. I went to eight different schools, for starters, between the UK, so I've always had that tie to Europe. I think definitely part of the reason I love it so much and pretty much go back every year during the summer whenever I can. Um, And in Australia, and there was always a lot of travel. There was always a lot of um, sort of immersion into the arts and culture, thanks to mum, which is something that I only become more grateful for as I get older. What was that? What was she travelling and exploring? I think mum just just loves loves it. There was no um, in, intent in terms of her profession or just something that she always really loved and I think wanted to expose us to, especially in Australia. It can be a bit of a, a bubble and it's so comfortable and so beautiful. Sometimes I think being here and not seeing outside of Australia can give you a bit of a false perception of the world. Yeah, it feels mm-hmm. a bit isolated. This is the way that things are. So it sounds like that exposure to... And we're so blessed yeah. like, to actually be grateful for what we have here. Yeah. yeah. So eight different schools, that must have been different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to say in my work that because I'm a change facilitator, transformational sort of experiential facilitator, that I had a PhD in change by the time I graduated high school, which probably fed my um, desires and passions for never being able to settle for one but also helping other people through change because I think that's a real pain point that I see for people so much in in my work is people are vulnerable when they're in a in a transitional part of their life and change really scares people and I guess I, I was so used to it at such a young age that I sort of understood that there's always something waiting for you on the other side of transition and that it's always going to be okay. Mm. Was that something you had to work through yourself through some of those eight different schools? Yeah, definitely, and I'm sure um, like I was a very, very sensitive child, so I'm sure that affected me and I think as you sort of get older you get a bit... I guess, harder and, and stronger and maybe I don't see it now in the way that it would have affected me then. But definitely remember feeling like sadness and leaving friends and places and especially one of my homes, which I just loved and I never forgave mum and dad for selling. Um, yeah, so definitely that. But there's different, I guess, levels to periods of transition and change, like going through periods in my life where I've had to not just change my circumstance or my, my location, but actually fully transitioning into a different identity. I think that's there, there's different layers to change process and that's definitely been something I've had to work through. 
And obviously now informs a lot of your work when you touched on before that that, that transition phase can be the most vulnerable totally. for people. That's It's really the toughest. And so what does some of your work do in, in that space for people? Yeah, sure. Um, so that sort of understanding that people were most vulnerable during transition and change was something that my work definitely informed. Like my intention originally was to support people who were struggling with their mental health and to help community really understand their role in um, supporting mental health and the fact that it's not just a political issue, it's also an issue that each of us need to champion. But as I started to do this work, something really remarkable started to happen and that's I started to see all of these parallels in the human experience as humans and what separates us or our perceived differences. And one of those things is when we are in a situation where we're transitioning, especially things really linked to someone's identity, whether that's like a relationship breakdown, for example, or they've been made redundant in their job or um, a loved one dies, like these really intense um, transitional phases where you just, when you're on the other side of that, there's no chance you're ever going to be the same person you were before that. What I've learnt is... um, how important it is to really have a container around that process for people. And that's something that throughout history, I think, has always been considered. But as you were sharing before this interview in the busyness of a Western context, we don't really have that container. You're sort of expected to... I was actually listening to a podcast um, just the other day and it was about suicide and she was sharing a story of one of the men that she had interviewed and he it was a really confronting story that sort of speaks to this he drove his car in a suicide attempt off the road but didn't um complete suicide so he was living and then woke up the next day and went to work like nothing happened you know and I think that's um there's so much in that that you can pull apart around what it's like for all of us in a modern day context and those expectations that I guess we feel society has on us, but also that we put on ourselves. And what I started to see is when I was creating these spaces for people to come to, healing is a natural process. It is an innate thing that we're wired to to do. It's a part of our evolution. Everything about your system and your physiology and your psychology just wants to heal. But if you're not giving it the space to do that, then it then it can't. And you're constantly just grazing that cut again and again and again and again. And yeah, it's sort of like in the process of undoing and, and not doing and being, I started to see that that change process for people when they are vulnerable and hurting and going through a difficult time has a natural rhythm. And you that person just needs to feel safe. That's all. Well, I agree with so much of that. There's a, there's there's something about providing a really safe environment, a safe space, and and I don't mean a physical environment, and I, and I'm sure you've experienced that too. It's just mm-hmm. that it's almost that psychological safety or totally. that emotional safety that whatever it is, it's mm-hmm. totally okay. Yeah, it's that's totally it. okay. Um, and you can it. sit in that. Why don't we do it more often? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> like we could spend the whole podcast just just deconstructing that. I think because there's a lot of there's a lot of elements to it. Um, another parallel, you know, between all the people I've worked with, which is hundreds of thousands of people now from very diverse sort of backgrounds and here and overseas and low socioeconomic and really high socioeconomic and different 
yeah, nationalities and races and sexualities and gender, so much diversity through all of that. Um, this, this sameness of needing to be loved and needing to be seen and needing to be heard is so present in every single person. And yet the reason I feel we don't create space for it is partly conditioning. You know, we've been conditioned to this is what your life should look like and to validate yourself by success and, and achievement and accomplishment, um, which is very Western. Like if you look at an Eastern philosophy, it's quite the opposite. If you can sit in stillness and just be, that is, that is success, a version of success. But I think there's actually something deeper than that, and that's within the context of the West, which is constantly saying validate yourself by doing and validate yourself by achievement, and you have to win at the expense of someone else's loss. That's very much the mindset of competition. It conditions us to feel unlovable and unworthy and like we're not enough. And I think when you have core belief systems like that, which I've seen in so many people um, to, to varying degrees, not feeling enough and not having a sense of enoughness um, affects the way that you show up in every component of your life, specifically how you show up in your relationships. If you don't feel enough, then how can you fully be present with someone and be vulnerable and expose yourself? How can you really take your time with what you're doing and know that that's enough? You know, you're going to have these racing thoughts that there's so much else to do or you're criticising yourself or you're judging other people as a projection of how you feel about yourself. All of these sorts of behaviours, I think, come back to these, uh, these root sort of core beliefs that a lot of people carry. And if you don't get a chance to look at that, you're, you're on guard the whole time. Yeah, you're, you're watching your back. Things that are popping in. You've got uh, this amazing book which has come out. It's called Love Out Loud. Mm. Congratulations, firstly, on getting the book out. Thank it's you. It's a big um, <laughs> creative achievement to, mm. to go through that process. Uh, and I love the title, Love Out Loud, oh, and obviously that bit of a play on the lol in our, yeah. in our society. What does it mean to, for you to live, to love out loud? Cool question. I actually um, did interviews for the online course that goes with the book, and I asked each person I interviewed what that means for them. And it's really interesting because it has such different definitions and meanings for people, which I th- found really cool. For me... Yeah, it's, it's a couple of things. I have a just fundamental philosophy that we're love. You know, at our core, human nature is loving. And we can act selfishly, but that's when we're in states of fear and survival. Uh, but innately, I believe that we're loving and I also believe that we live in a loving universe. The current of existence is loving and it's constantly evolving and expanding. So it's not so much about us having to find ourselves or search for love it's actually about understanding that it's what you are and if you can tap into that and express that and it doesn't mean you have to even do it loudly but just to connect into that and to live your life from that place I think the world's never needed that as much as it does as it does now I mean it's always needed it of course but to actually have people that are willing to tap into that love inside of them and love even when people are hating them and love even when people are judging them and and love even when there's war happening and love even when our politicians are lying to us, you know, to, to have the courage to actually step away from the fear and the conditions and actually step into love is what it really means for me and it's not about being perfect. You know, something I write in my prologue 
um, that's very close to my heart is love is not finding the perfection. It's the unconditional permission to explore the imperfection. And I really believe that if we could give each other that grace and love ourselves enough and love each other enough to be imperfect, but through love and acceptance, society would find such peace, I, I feel. So the unconditional permission. <laughs> to explore the imperfection. To explore the imperfection, yeah. And that's when we get to breathe, a, breathe deeper because <laughs> exactly. you just go, you know, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get this right. I don't have to be on top of it. Yeah. Um, for me, even just thinking about that title, it, you know, it's, you know, I was kind of doing our preparation coming into the conversation today. I think the thing that jumped out for me was it's loving in witness. So often mm. we will we'll think about the people that we love or something that they've done for us that we go, man, that was so awesome, but we don't always tell them. We totally. don't always express that. We don't always... It, it makes almost us feels feel like, vulnerable to yeah, actually express that. Yeah. We're not allowed to. We'll, we'll be seen as weak mm. or, you mm. know... Or just we'll be seen full stop, Yeah, I think, is a fear Yeah, in and of itself. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Obviously in so much of your work, and I want to touch into some of your work in a moment, but a big part of your work has been to be seen. Mm. And, um, yeah, as you just touched on, that's it's society-wise, it's it's not always the Australian way. It's, it's yeah, not always kind of the Western way. way. Um, bit of tall poppy syndrome and, you know, come and be part of the pack. Mm. Has that been pretty straightforward a journey for you in terms of sharing your voice and being seen? Mm. Um, or has that been something that you've had to, to come to? Yeah, of course, it's a work in progress. And I don't think it, it ever comes easy like that for someone. I guess my disadvantage or what I felt was my disadvantage growing up was actually my advantage because I always did feel very different, very empathic, very sensitive. But it was, I was sort of in an interesting position because I was always quite popular and I'd always did quite well at school. So it was this sort of thing that I carried inside of myself that even within the context of um, something social or being at school, it, I was never seen to be different. It was a feeling of loneliness that I always experience this feeling of, you know, why can't I connect or why do I have a deeper curiosity to understand or why do I really want to see this person and they actually, they don't know how to see me, those sorts of questions, you know, what is the meaning of life, who am I? These were questions that I was contemplating at a very, very young age um, and who am I in relation to the world and who, I, who am I in relation to my peers? And it created that deep inquiry that actually made me feel quite isolated plus... Um, I've always sort of felt that I'm extremely creative, which sort of sets you apart as well in systems, especially that are very linear and rigid and driven with sort of academia rather than philosophical thinking and conceptual thinking, which is how I'm definitely geared. Um, and then going through mental illness, which I think was a byproduct of that feeling of disconnection and loneliness especially something like anorexia, that really starts to set you apart from, from your peers. So I was sort of forced into this space of vulnerability and this is something um, I was actually writing about recently. The differences between f life forcing you into a position of vulnerability when your back's up against a wall and it breaks you and it creates this really painful association with vulnerability. But then on the other side of that, vulnerability is this incredible catalyst, but you need to understand that it can actually be a source of empowerment when it's your choice. 
So when I started to realise that, coming out of what I was experiencing as a teenager, I started to realise, well, I've already experienced the depths of my pain. I've already experienced the depths of that vulnerability. I know what it's like to feel um, totally isolated from everyone around me. I know what it feels like to not be able to get up in the morning. I know what it feels like to be crippled with anxiety, um, so on and so forth. So, you know, it can't be any worse. And it gave me a courage and it gave me a strength. I guess I hit my rock bottom at quite a young age um, to, to not fear that. And there was really no other way. I think when you've been cracked open like that, and that's the gift, it, was, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't like I can choose to be a leader in this and I can choose to have a voice and I, I'm you know, making a um, concerted effort to be seen. It was more like, what's the alternative? Is, would, would it be to... Because I just felt like um, everything I went through was going to be in vain if I was to then leave you know where I was where I graduated high school and start life again and pretend like none of it happened and just be another a face in the crowd I couldn't do that it defined me so much and I got to a point where so many people that were guiding me through that process whether they were doctors or you know teachers or even at times my parents I would look at them and just think there's such a uh, there's something missing in terms of your vulnerability, you know, in terms of your happiness and the words you say, and I, they don't they don't hit me. I can't feel them, and I just remember thinking like I don't have the foresight or the hindsight to know whether or not your way is the way because everyone had very strong opinions, but this feeling inside of me is enough for me to trust that there's something in that and. I think I just started to really live my life in a very different way to a lot of people. It was never about other people's opinions anymore it, at all because if I had listened to that, I would have been defined as the person that was always going to struggle with mental illness, um, that was different, that was too intense, too sensitive, felt too much, all of these things, which are actually my greatest asset. They were the things that people were constantly having an opinion about how I should change or shift. So what you're describing is almost that depth of pain is actually then allowed this deeper voice to definitely to be heard <laughs> inside mm. of you, or at least go, hang on, there's something there that I want to I want to chase and follow. What uh, you know in those in that experience of your own mental health, what were some of the steps that helped you out of out of that? Was that the people around you? Was that that inner voice calling? Was it a combination? What mm. what did you do? Yeah, sure. Um, it's hard to, to sort of know how big a role my clinical support team played in sort of my genuine healing. They definitely played a role in my weight restoration and, and physical elements of what I was going through. But often I'd, I never felt emotionally safe or supported within the context of a lot of those environments and attending so many appointments every week in such clinical settings um, and very much in awareness that this person... I'm just another number to this person. They're seeing a hundred other people th today or this week. And that wasn't something that I ever judged. It was just an awareness that I had. And what I was craving was something a lot more real. You know, I, I didn't want a therapist. I wanted a friend that I could actually be myself with and, and sort through it. Um, so I'm sure it did play a role. But I think more than that, it was when I started to hit this understanding that... I needed to take responsibility for my own journey and I was sick of life pushing me into these corners of vulnerability. I actually wanted to choose. 
I didn't want to choose to shut down or run away anymore or avoid it. I didn't want to harden. I actually just wanted to redirect and become more empowered in these experiences that I was having of deep sensitivity. And I started to stand up for that. I gave that a voice, that thing in me. It's sort of what I see now is as my faith, my spirituality. It's not religious, but it's it's definitely present. This feeling that um, there's something more for me to sort of trust in than just the the biased perspectives of the people around me and I started to very much feel and experience that there was a witness to my existence and maybe that was just a nice idea that helped me and still does help me but I really do feel that it, it's present and it's an essence and it supports all of us and knowing that has so many gifts the first is no other human is ever going to be there with you 24 hours a day every day. So you're in your aloneness ultimately always. And yet if you're in your aloneness and you don't feel like there's a presence or a witness to that aloneness, it can sometimes be really hard to hold yourself to account and to be really honest with yourself. It becomes so easy to run away if you, if you feel like you're alone um, and that you can get away with it or not be honest with yourself, or not process that pain, not go there when actually something in you really wants you to, um, or to deflect, you know. And, and that sense that there was a witness, or is a witness, allowed me to start to have very honest conversations with myself, um, which was a very profound part of my healing. You know, the second chapter in my book is on honesty and the importance of honesty. And we can't heal what we don't reveal, literally. We have to come to a, a place where we can put all of our cards on the table so that we can actually create a pathway forward. And in the mind of an anorexic, you live life the opposite way. You know, any time I didn't have eyes on me, I was desperately grasping for ways to trick the system and to lose weight and to, you know, throw up the meal that I just had or it was the opposite there was no account and I didn't love myself enough to hold me to account. So it was this big spiritual shift in the way that I was looking at life to there is something there that is holding me to my authenticity and accountability and I have a responsibility to honour this life that I've been given and a deep reverence that comes with that when it's something bigger than yourself and a deep sense of gratitude. That's really transformational because it's those little comments where it's like, well, I'll just do it this once. I'll just, mm. it'll be okay today. I'll start that new thing. And mm. it doesn't have to be the big life changes, but it mm. might be the little stuff that you know in, in somewhere inside of you, you know mm. you want to shift and change, but I'll do that on Monday or mm. I'll get around That's to it, it next month. Or um, we've got, you know, it's holidays, we've got family over. So mm. this sense of actually I'm doing it all in witness, mm. that there is something and and it's the thing that kind of wants the best of me. Exactly. So what or would it be? demands it. What would no. it be championing for? What would mm. it want? What exactly. would that look like? So at the age of 18, you started the Rogue and Rouge Foundation, uh, which is for uh, teenagers, so the age of 12 to 25, mm. and looking at mental health. Tell me, because it's one thing to, and it sounds like that was such a transformational experience, and, and I can hear in your language there was a part of you going, I, you know, I almost can't not mm. keep sharing this message mm. for other people as well. 
But it is one thing to say, I want to share a message. It's a whole other thing to start a foundation. (laughs) What was the pull to actually starting that foundation? Very much what you just described in terms of I was looking for any sort of avenue or vehicle to be able to be a conduit of that message and bring it forth to communities in a sustainable way. And I was really open at the time, like, what does that look like? Um, I'd graduated from a performance academy, so that was very ingrained in my training in terms of um, playing with space and theatre is very much about that, which was my major, and speaking to audiences and bringing people into an experience. So that was very a part of what I wanted to um, leverage and draw upon because I loved that as well. That was my passion and my love, and I think it's powerful when you can bring people into an experience. But there was this message in my heart, so it wasn't enough to act as a character in a play, even though that was so profound. I actually, I thought, you know, the best character I could be in this life is is me and the best version of myself. And that's sort of those, um, that was sort of the ideation. So how do I create something that actually encourages other people to be that as well? Um, and there was a lot of pivoting in in the early days. So I got a seed funding grant for $5,000. And as an 18-year-old, I thought that that was so amazing. Much money. <laughs> I was like, that's, whoa, you know, I think I had, you know, $50 in my bank. So that was, yeah, a pretty big deal. And um, from there, sort of, I had enough funding to get the, the model right and... Um, applied and got the sort of charity status which is pretty amazing and then reached out to community and put um, a committee board together and we were working in quite a different sort of way initially because I was still trying to figure out how how do I be a voice what does that look like because going back eight years it was a very new conversation no one was really doing that there were no sports stars stepping up and saying this is my journey of mental health it wasn't on the political agenda um maybe my echo chamber just became more directed in that. That's a possibility, but I really never saw or was privy to those sorts of messages. So I didn't know what it looked like. And when we started to fundraise, uh, we were funneling that money into families that didn't have enough funds to be able to support their young people. So it was sort of like a third party foundation that could help families specifically that didn't have private health insurance. Um, with young people, they're young people that had mental health challenges. And what I started to see through that was we were fundraising tens of thousands of dollars and it was so expensive to help one person. And I just remember thinking, this can't be, this can't be it. And then I really started to surrender. I really started to surrender to this witness and be like, okay, what what does it look like? Because I'm prepared to do anything. And be careful what you wish for, right? Because how it's going to come to you and what's going to be asked of you when you open yourself like that is very unconventional, generally speaking. It's not within the context of society and what society is wanting you to do and be. And I actually started to have these dreams of... Um, of a van and traveling Australia and speaking to communities. It was actually in my dreams that I first started to see this. And I was just experiencing a bunch of synchronicities from my dreams throughout my day, thoughts that I would have. And then I would, you know, meet someone that matched that thought exactly. Sort of those beginning, I'm not sure if you, if you guys can relate, but that beginning experience of awakening where you just feel like everything's magic. You feel like the world's moving around you. Um, 
And on the other hand, you think, if I tell this to anyone, they're going to think that I'm batshit crazy. (laughs) So I was in that real dichotomy where I was like, whoa, like the universe is literally working through me. I'm becoming an instrumentality for something so much greater than myself. But I was so scared to talk about it because it was so unconventional. Um, But it just started to get so loud that I had no other choice but to sort of listen to these visions and actually had a um who became my co-founder of champions for change which was our first national tour reach out to me saying that she had been wanting to do a similar thing so we teamed up with two other girls as well and spent two years what ended up being two years corporately funded um national tour which was yeah the premise of it was to go into communities and share our story and empower communities to start their own change projects or stand for something that was significant to them um to create that that ripple effect and it was amazing we reached 50,000 people in those in that time across 300 communities so it was massively significant and lo and behold at the end of that what we had actually achieved is one of the largest primary research ever done, completely grassroots. Wow. Into, yeah, mental health specifically within communities. And the findings of that were just so opposite to what the conversation was um, in the health space. We were seeing that what these opinions of sort of leading psychs and the health department was, was just so far removed from the reality of jimmy that lives in you know rural community between wa and nt it was just a very different narrative what were you seeing out in communities it's just the humanness you're reminded of the humanity like none of the policy matters and i i say that even as someone that served as a commissioner in the health um the health department federal health department for three and a half years i still believe that as much as i ever have that it's not about the policy the infrastructure should be there to support the way that we can aid and and help people. And if the policy is actually getting in the way of that, it's not effective policy. And that systems shouldn't be seen as a life force of their own. We need to look at systems as driven by humans and what how humans choose to show up and interact within those systems um, will determine the quality of our services as a country. And it was really quite confronting because you'd have a kid that was totally disengaged and, you know, we can create like a um, persona of one of the sort of typical young people that you might see out in those communities who wasn't really attending school, had a really low attendance rate, maybe was living with a, um alcoholic mum or dad or only one parent or it was a single mum. He was responsible for looking after and raising his younger siblings because there was no support, there was no services out um, out where he is so he couldn't sort of reach out and connect in that way and then you have major organizations I won't name names trying to roll out like um, electronic mental health services that are self um, meant to be self-motivated you know and the solution that's getting funded billions of dollars is we're going to go to communities and tell these kids to jump on the computer and be their own therapist and that's just like it doesn't and I felt crazy because I was like, is there something I'm missing for people who are so learned and so educated to just be missing the mark so greatly? And so I was just really, um, well, firstly humbled by it, but it, what it created in my approach to communities was I would go into communities saying, I don't know the answer, but what I'm willing to do is go on a journey to find that out with you. 
and I'm willing to share my story and give you a demonstration of what it looks like to be vulnerable and to stand in your power even when it hurts um, and invite you to, to know that you can do the same. And I would have kids come up to me that would, that would say, you know, I've, people have tried to help me for so many years or I've been to so many different um, services or I've, I've seen my psych for three, four, five years and I've gotten more out of this two-hour session than I've ever had. And I really started to look at that because I knew that it wasn't me specifically. It was something, it was something about my approach. And my approach, the only difference that I could sort of narrow it down to was actually the willingness to not know. So not putting on that mask of I'm an expert and I know Here's what's your five-step you. plan and if exactly. you follow the five Seven step steps plan. to happiness. If <laughs> yeah. you follow these, then you'll be happy. Um, but actually, again, just giving the space for um, people to feel what they're actually going through and be honest. And that's a big part of how I establish a space. Um, to set the context of a space that's safe, it's, you know, this is a non-judgmental space or a space that's fueled with acceptance and anything that's spoken in this space, make sure it's your truth because this is an opportunity for you to actually be able to speak that, which is, that is the transformation. When you get people to start speaking the truth, then change will naturally happen after that. And we were just seeing such amazing breakthroughs and such amazing healing that I sort of never looked back after that. After that, those two years, I was like, "There's something in this," and it's actually just to remind people of their humanity. I can imagine that's the pull to the next thing and the next thing, mm. and we've got to keep this going. Mm. And and uh, there being such a void of that, yeah. um, how do we actually create that in other ways? I guess I'm I'm sitting here thinking about because that's just you know so profound going out into communities and obviously talking about what is such a vulnerable, such a personal, um, but also a community-based issue around mental health. Um, but what you're describing is the power of just this safe environment to mm. be authentic, to be transparent, to just be real, mm. be real and honest. If there is someone listening who's kind of going, oh, I'm craving that, um, mm. what could they do to start that, whether that's in their home environment or even in their own workplace? Sure. it's a great question. Um, and something that people actually often ask me or it's the opposite of that, which is you don't understand what it's like. It's not that easy. I get If you were that. in my shoes. Yeah, if you were in my <laughs> shoes, you wouldn't be saying, you wouldn't have this perspective or this opinion. But the reason I can speak from it is because I have walked it. I do, I do know what it's like to be the person that's blaming and projecting and saying, you don't fucking understand and it's not that easy and it's not just about me, you know, being the change. But it was as I walked my path, I really started to see that, you know, these gurus that, that say that actually know what they're talking about. There's, there's weight in that. And if you're craving that, I really, really believe... Um, and know that you have to give with the same hand that you want to receive. And so if you want to create that, you have to become that. And there's going to be things that come up. You know, it's not as easy as waking up tomorrow and being like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the demonstration of, of safe space and I'm going to be totally vulnerable and totally authentic. And non-judgmental and, non-judgmental and whatever exactly. comes in, except you're not allowed to wear that hat, Sally, and you can't wear That's it. it. All like judgments it. will be eradicated from my mind. Yeah. I'll be fully unconditionally loving to everyone. No, that's not how it works. But how it starts is when you wake up tomorrow, my ask of you is to commit to the journey. And when I say commit, I mean when that trigger comes up, when that judgment comes into your head, if you're committed to this process, you will be aware of it and you'll be committed enough to work through it. 
I think what tends to happen is people, firstly, they're not committed to that path or that journey. So they're just in the judgment constantly and they don't have, they're not giving themselves an alternative way of being. And they're potentially looking for the solution external to them. You know, when I meet the person that I unconditionally love and who I have absolutely no judgments towards, then they're going to be my saving grace. You know, just like the idea Walt Disney um, sort of sold us with the perfect romance, that that person exists and they'll complete you and the rest is history. Um, I think anyone who's been in a long-term relationship can understand that the love can be so there and so unconditional in its own way. But you do have judgments and you do have opinions. And if you love that person enough, then you're going to actually work through that and you're going to communicate and you're going to be honest and you're going to commit because you know that those judgments hold really no weight in comparison to the love that you feel. Using that as an example or a metaphor that's sort of what I encourage people to do in their life. You know, that romance, I actually write it in my book as understand that the ultimate romance you're in is with life. That's the ultimate romance. And if you can commit to life in the way that you would commit to your husband or wife who you're madly in love with on your wedding day, then it's not that life will become easier, but life will become so much more rewarding, so much more fulfilled because you're not letting life happen to you you're actually allowing yourself to work in a symbiosis with life and it will grow you and you'll actually start to be that person who stands for authenticity, who stands for love, who stands for acceptance. Even when it's hard, even when you're failing at it, you still believe in it and you stand with it. And when you can become that, it will be a natural consequence that your family will start to take notice of that, that your co-workers will start to take notice of that. You have to be the change and you'll find that even if it sort of makes people feel uncomfortable or there's a friction, the more you commit to it, the more it actually give, gives them permission to be the same. But you have to be patient because sometimes that takes a while for people to warm up to, to get used to, especially if it's a shift in your identity. People don't know how to take that sometimes, you know, and um, that comes down to, yeah, your your willingness and so sense of self-assurance and not needing validation immediately. So, and that shift in identity is a huge one. I'd love to go down a rabbit warren just for a little bit on because, yeah, I think it's totally true and we can shift our identity much quicker than the people around us have kind of caught up mm. and they can remember us as the, um, you know, in a certain kind of light and, yeah. and we've made the decision and we're making, doing the work and mm. going down a certain path. One of the things that can come up and I've certainly heard from people is that sometimes in that shift of identity you can... Some sometimes relationships will drop off. It might be friendships or family because mm. in within that relationship we used to always bitch and moan. Mm. We used to always complain about everything, and now I'm standing for something different, mm. or it, I, it's not something that I want to dive into mm. anymore. But that was our identity in, in that kind of relationship. Mm. Um, have you noticed that? And I guess again, how have either you navigated or helped other people to navigate mm. that shift in identity? Such an important question because I think it's something that every person can relate to that's trying to better themselves or shift. It is the hardest thing to do to love someone enough to allow them to change their mind. It's so hard because for a lot of us who don't have an awareness of the way that we love, we fall in love with our idea of someone we fall in love with who they are in our life, the role that they play in our life. And that's not genuine love. 
know, it's it's an aspect of love, but genuine love is to be able to see that person in their wholeness, or what I teach is to see someone in their divinity, which is unlimited, you know, unlimited possibility. They're not bound by any label, any component of their sort of um, previous identities, but they have a divinity and a sovereignty. And when you truly love someone, and I feel I can honestly say I love all humanity in that way, and that doesn't mean I won't be tested by certain personalities, but I have fundamental love for humanity in that way, that I always seek and strive to see someone in their wholeness, always. It's such a hard thing to do, um, and it takes a lot of practice, and you need to first love yourself in that way, you know, love yourself beyond the identity. For me, stepping out of the identity as an anorexic, which was so defining, every part of me, especially through such formative years, my peers spent the years of 13 to 18 forming their identity. The only Id identity that I'd ever known was, was anorexia. That's a pretty significant thing to then step into the world for the first time and be like, who the fuck am I away from this? So I really have lived that. Um, and I know how scary it is to take the leap off the, off the cliff. <laughs> um, but when you can understand that you have that wholeness and allow yourself to just follow your joy and not be held back by who you think you should be or who others see you as, that's so gold. And the right people who see you and love you enough will be there. And it's actually, it's also about being grateful for the clarity because the people that can't love you as you go through that transition are not meant for you. And it's a harsh, it's a harsh reality. I've lost a lot of people that I've loved dearly because they haven't been able to, um, handle that. And I've, it, I've experienced it the other way. You know, I've been so attached to how people have been for me in my life that when they wanted to grow and change, I knew that I was actually going to be holding them back from doing that because I just had too much attachment and it was only through separation and distance um, that that could shift. I do believe that there's a hack when it comes to this though um, for it to not have to be so tragic that you lose everyone when you go through a transitional period and it's if society was to more deeply understand the power and the role of acknowledgement and honour. When you can fully acknowledge something, then the charge around it, the attachment around it will generally dissipate. I talked about this a lot in my TED talk that I did recently, that acknowledgement equals transformation because as soon as something is acknowledged, when you have a charge, when you're like, how dare that person change because this is how I know you, that feeling, that charge, it just needs to be acknowledged. So if you're the person shifting, to actually be able to speak to that and say, I know that you're hurting, see them in their innocence, understand that this is actually a pain that's real for them. They're not trying to um, hurt you. This is their pain that they're projecting onto you. If you can speak to that and say, I know that you've seen me in this light and I've, I've played this role and I've loved the journey that I've shared in our connection and our relationship, and I actually don't want that to end. You just need to give me space to birth myself into something else and I love you just the same, just because it looks different. So to actually put a voice to that, to so a really practical like, way, yeah, have that conversation. Definitely have it and it's um, develop a language for that. To acknowledge is a very um, incredible skill from being an amazing leader to being great in an intimate relationship to um, a parent and child's relationship to you know, and any, anything to actually acknowledge the difference between um, you, you know, I really love what you do versus 
it's so significant to me that you have spent the last two years really refining down a list of people that you think have an incredible voice, who have something really worthwhile to say and devote yourself to that service of bringing that message to the world. I really respect and honour that. You know, the difference Mm. in that, and it doesn't take any more time. It's just a practice to actually be able to look beneath the surface and beneath your own biases and actually be like, wow, I get to be here enjoying this podcast with you, but I'm not just going to see it as this. I'm going to respect and honour the fact that this is so much of your hard work and so much of your blood, sweat and tears and heart that's gone into creating this. And I want to hold that honour for for you as we're in this. Mm. And when you can give someone that, it's like, again, this sense of like permission and relief and like, oh, I'm seen. So I don't have to hold on so tight to this identity because identity is just a vehicle for us to be seen. So if you see someone, they're going to actually, you'll start to, and you'll notice it, right, in your inner circle, the more that you accept someone and love someone, the more you start to see other sides of them. And that's because they feel safe to express themselves. But if you don't have that safety, a lot of the time you have a mask and a bravado that's actually helping protect you and so that you can control the way that you're being perceived. So to give people that, it's almost the love of actually seeing them mm. and seeing why they're doing something and, and what's driving behind that and the effort or the cost that it's come mm. at them, um, mm. for them, for yeah. whatever it is that they're doing. And as you were talking, like I guess for me that can only really happen if you stop worrying about you. Mm. <laughs> like you can only be really present with someone and really see them when you stop worrying about what am I going to say next, how am I looking totally. here, like how am I coming across, which yeah. is often that mental chatter. So Dialogue. it's quietening that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, building up that muscle of really being able to see the people that you're around. That's it. Someone actually asked a question the other day in a workshop and they said, how do I overcome feelings of insecurity? Um, rephrased, how are you so confident? And I don't really think of myself as confident or not confident, which was a really interesting, like, thing to hear from her perception because she struggles with this feeling of insecurity. And I really sat with it and I thought about it and then I answered it by saying, you know, I feel in terms of insecurity and I thought back to periods of my life where I felt very insecure. It's exactly what you just said. in, In context to any situation, I was thinking about what people were thinking of me. That was my whole, that's what consumed me and it created so much room for insecurity. But as a facilitator and training this muscle, I've learned to actually walk into a space and be totally present with you. And if my presence and attention is on you and actually listening to you, and really deeply being present with you, then my focus isn't on myself. It's actually impossible for me to feel insecure. And I think that that's a really powerful thing, right, to to understand that, that Tony Robbins talks about this a lot in his work, that pain can only exist in the self. As soon as you start to actually create a mindset of, of giving and presence to others and service to others, then that pain goes away. So what is it that you can turn up for others? Mm. It's a big, big, big shift. Yep. One of the other things you talk about, which I love, um, 
particularly in this space of mental health. So I'm a psychologist, so I've worked in that clinical kind of environment. And even in that space, I remember thinking it feels really isolated for the individual. It's almost like there's something wrong with you, off you go, get that sorted out and then come back into community. But you talk about this sense of community connectedness, Mm. particularly in, in the sense of mental health. We're in an environment where we're connected all the time with our mobile phones and Mm. and devices on social media, and yet I get a sense, and I'm wondering if you have as well, that people feel more disconnected probably now than they ever have. How important is this message around community connectedness? I think it's everything. Like, we're tribal beings, right? (laughs) Unless we have that, that's the foundation. When you look at any basic human needs pyramid, we'll use Maslow as as an example the most well-known. You've got your physiological needs, so food, shelter, water, sex, etc. And above that, right above that, is a need for acceptance and belonging and safety. That's That comes far before um, self-esteem and self-actualization, sense of purpose, etc. So it's actually the foundation. And when we can have that feeling of safety and those foundations that where we know our place in the tribe, in our community, then it's of course, we're going to be self-actualized. We're going to have so much room and we're going to feel so safe to um, pursue things that are creative and to develop our self-esteem based on our expression and to reach higher levels of self-actualization. But what I think tends to happen in a lot of the messages in the self-help industry and personal development, and sometimes I feel even within clinical contexts, is it's this um, focus on self-actualization what is your purpose? You know, who are you? What are you going to do without actually looking at those beginnings? You know, what are, what are your foundations? What, who's, who's your community? What's, what's helping you feel safe? Um, and it's so important. We all need to take responsibility for that. Every single citizen, every single community member, because it's not just in um, schools. It's not just in workplaces, which I think get targeted so much. You're responsible for this. It's actually how you're showing up for someone that you walk past on the street. You know, it's it's something that we all require and we've developed this behaviour that is almost unnatural. It, you're the weird one if you talk to someone on the bus. You're the weird one if you smile at a stranger on the street. And that's actually, that's quite alarming because it goes against our wiring. We're not wired to be like that. We're wired to connect and we're wired to be, um, yeah, tribal. So it's it's the most important thing. I think until you have that and um, and strive to create that and strive to be that for other people so that that means look at your relationships and actually ask yourself, why am I in relationship with this person? Is it because they validate me? Is it because I don't want to be alone? Is it because I think that they're cool? You know, these are genuine reasons why people um, hang out in the in the groups that they do. And really start to ask yourself, what would a meaningful connection look like to me? What if I had relationships in my life that I actually wanted to invest in and help them understand that they're loved and that they're supported and that they're seen and I'm going to be that tribe member for for the people in my life? And I think you have the courage to actually almost create your own community. Mm. I've spoken to a few people and they've sort of said, oh, I wish I had a group that I could just talk to about whether it's the struggles Mm. of parenting or work or, mm. you know, I really wish I had that. And I'm always going, well, yeah, create it. Who would if you, you, you who would it, you invite? Who would you have? Yeah. Um, go and build those, mm. have that as a bit of a focus to kind of build those communities. What's the thing that's exciting you in terms of what's next? Oh, so many things. <laughs> um, 
I feel like I'm really excited for the rest of this year, not just the trip, but generally with um, with the book and, and the course. A big thing of focus for me is... Um, so people can do an online course? Online course, yeah. But um, also facilitated courses, so they'll use the online curriculum as the basis of resource with hookups once a week online in a webinar where they can ask questions and debrief. But it will also have an intensive at the beginning and a retreat at the end. And it's a really cool idea for me to be able to streamline my work for that for multiple reasons because I've spent the last seven years being a total nomad in just different city every week and I've loved it. But I know that I can have a deeper service if I have more stability and routine. Routine's a big, it's a big component and I try my best to keep routine even when I'm traveling. But it can be, um, it can be difficult, especially when your timetables, you know, here, there and everywhere, you've got 5.30 a.m. flights and you're working until 11 o'clock at night, which isn't uncommon, especially when I'm doing community outreach work um, or at conferences or whatever. So it really excites me, the idea that I'm going to be in a, a position where I'm, I'm going to be able to generate more and be able to give more. But also I think it's really cool to actually bring people out of their comfort zones. So people that I generally would have travelled to work with to actually invite them into a space that I've created that's totally neutral um, with, you know, hopefully no phone reception during the (laughs) retreat and really do um, the work that I love, which is... Um, centred around something I call rites of passage, but it's essentially this safe space and this space for healing and this container for transformation to occur. I know that it's a lot easier to generate that when you're not working within the confines of um, someone's workplace, for example, or a um, convention centre where there's preconceived notions, this is what it's going to be like, or associations, to bring people out of that and into a space where none of that exists so they can just be... They can drop in, yeah. Already they're vulnerable, so yeah. let's just run with, exactly. <laughs> with, what's, with what's coming. Yeah. Such important conversations and messages and, um, yeah, there's certainly, you know, people can read the book and, and find out a bit more about your course online and, and watch your TED Talk and find out a bit more about the conversations and what they can make an impact mm-hmm. in the communities that they're, that they're sitting in. Mm-hmm. I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Um, if I were to offer that term up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? When I hear that, it reminds me of something one of my theatre directors used to say to us. And um, one of his big terms was be extraordinary. And that's really what it speaks to in me because that was a very defining part of my sort of growing up and how I saw life was why, why settle for mediocrity. And um, to be extraordinary is, to, is, I think, to be okay standing out because when you're in your extraordinariness um, and you're doing you and you're doing it awesomely, I think people notice that because they want it for themselves. And that's actually such a gift. It shines a light on people's shadows and pain and darkness. So to commit to having a standout life and to developing... You know, like an artist, um, literally looking at life as an artist would look at a canvas and really be intentional. That's a really um, something that really comes to me when I think about living a standout life is to be intentional and to live with intent and to consider, consider things that people just let pass them by. 
know, your space at home down to I'm very much like this, very meticulous. Like I want everything to be beautiful because it can be. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't you? And to just keep, when you find your craft, even if that's simply being an awesome person, if that's your craft, if that's what you decide you want to dedicate your life to, or maybe it's to be an incredible musician or a speaker or whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is but do it with so much reverence and treat it like, like a God, you know, that's sort of, I think within that, then, yeah, you find out what you're capable of and it's generally so much more than what you ever believe that you could be because when you commit to something like that and to standing out, um, life starts to write you and your art starts to write you and that's when it really gets exciting. <laughs> Your smile says it all. (laughs) Thanks for being extraordinary, Nick. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.